Hi, and welcome back for a discussion on Anthony Larson's first book, And the Moon Shall Turn to Blood, Chapter 7. Just a couple of housekeeping items before we begin. Today we have a guest with us, Leland Tanner. We're so excited for you to listen to today's discussion. Our pre-game chat turned into a full-out discussion, which I wasn't recording, so you're only missing out on about the first two minutes of our discussion, and we tried to reiterate the important parts as we uh, went through. But the audio does just pick up mid-sentence, so just a fair warning there. And number two, Leland has agreed to come back in a couple of weeks to answer questions relating to cosmism that any listeners may have. So please consider and submit any and all questions to us by filling out the form at the bottom of the page on learningzion.com cosmism. We will collect and group the questions together by a deadline of January 14th and record a session with Leland after that, with Leland, Wendy, and I attempting to answer them to the best of our ability or at least point you in the right direction. With that, I hope you enjoy this discussion with Leland as much as we did on the topic of cosmism in the book of Revelation. Let's look at this from that same perspective that what he's describing is familiar to everyone. It's unfamiliar to us because we deny that catastrophes happen in our modern standard paradigm, that we don't think that the heavens have changed. We think for billions of years, the earth has existed going around this same sun that we see in the sky when all the ancient people witnessed that, no, the sun changed. <laughs> the sun has changed, actually. And that's, uh, that's where we have the cognitive dissonance, where you say, these are, these are strange ideas, Leland. These are, this is very weird to consider. Um, like, I get that a lot from everybody. Or they'll tell me, you're looking past the mark. And I say, no, no like, uh, it, it's hard to get past that initial barrier of, of cognitive dissonance. But that's the idea behind this, that what John's saying is the past is is the key to the future, that we can look to the things, the plagues that happened in Moses's day, and we can apply them to say, hey, that's what we can expect during a planetary catastrophe, when things are uh, go into upheaval and God comes down in power. That's what they had witnessed before. That's what this is. It's setting it up. Um, so I hope at least that context from my perspective helps to paint a perspective or, or, or an understanding of what Anthony Larson's doing here as well. I have my own takes as well on Anthony Larson in terms of where I think he swings his own pendulum a little too far in one direction or not. And, and I'll just say it out front because in the book of Revelation, it does come up a bit where these, these signs and symbols, and I'm sorry, my lighting is terrible, but if this is just audio, it's okay. <laughs> uh, but these signs and symbols that they're using, uh, they're found through all prophetic visions, Daniel, uh, Ezekiel, all these people are using the same images, same basic structure and, and story, but it, just in, in slightly different ways. What Anthony Larson likes to do, though, when he preaches and gives his lectures is like deny that they have any application whatsoever literally to people on Earth or things on Earth or, or governments on Earth. And he wants to put it all in, in the cosmic sphere as like we can only read it and think of it as that way. I push back on that because I know and prophets have testified that and Joseph Smith even that these beasts and figures, especially in like Daniel 7 or Daniel 2, they do represent earthly kingdoms and not just heavenly symbolic um, archetypes because that's what anthony larson is focusing on in these and that's how i take it i glean that from anthony larson in that he is exposing the underlying archetypes like we're talking about these cosmic archetypes that if we can see through how they've morphed through apostases or through various breaks and branches from from the original tree of knowledge um this helps us do that and and it helps us to be like ammon to lamoni to say well what do you believe in Right? We can go to the Hindus and say, well, what do you believe in? Oh, well, that great spirit, the lotus flower that Buddha sits on or whatever it might be, we can relate that to that is Jesus Christ and here's how. And we can use John's revelation to do that. 
because all of the same imagery of the eschatol eschatology or the end times prophecies of like the end of the world happening that is shown in the book of Revelation is consistent in every culture through the Babylonians, the Persians, the Hindus, the Buddhists, the whatever. Everybody's got an end of the world scenario, whether it's Muslim or whatever. And in fact, when you look at them in a more broad perspective, they're pretty consistent and interlocked. And it really is just a shift in the foundation of knowledge that we have in the Latter-day Church and through prophets that can set all that up to stand up straight and make sense. That's what I think this endeavor is the beginning of. So if you're willing, if you're willing to see things like that, that we can look at mythology as actual history and not just made up stuff, but they're using symbolism. And that's strange to the world today. They only see symbolism in marketing. They don't use it as, as necessarily as sacred tools as, as they have been used to the, to the measure that they should be used. And um, that's what the temple and the church changes. That's the restoration of this, that putting the temple as that center focus and fix uh, of, of our attention puts symbolism as the language of God back in front and center, and it connects all these other traditions. Sorry, that's my rant. But just to introduce, I, I didn't mean to do that. I didn't write that. I just, but I hope that helps explain at least like this chapter um, yeah. going into it. Yeah, I love it. Um, okay. <laughs> so I I started recording like halfway through that because I was like, oh wow, <laughs> these are oh my so many <laughs> fun different little things there. Um, so can you repeat? It was right before I started uh, recording the part where that Revelation is written as as a missionary tract to that anybody uh, from any cultural background could could pick it up. Could you kind of repeat or, or uh, reiterate what you had? Uh, mentioned there in that that spotlight because I think that that's so key to this. Yeah, so let's just think we, we've re we've gone through the Old Testament and we got to remember that this was all that the gospel, the truth, the knowledge of God, the, um, the endowment was offered only to a select chosen people, right? Even down when Christ comes through, that's what he's he's teaching to his own, to the Jews, to his people, the covenant people, and they reject him. Ultimately, that's what the apostles end up doing. That's the big change in the New Testament, right? That Peter has the vision of the sheet come down and that they can then go preach the gospel to all these Gentile nations. And when he says Gentiles, we're talking exactly the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, all these people that have come in and systematically captivated Israel, taken them over, corrupted their things. These are the people now that the gospel is being authorized to go out to preach to. And we, what, what their book of Revelation is, is an organized effort or a missionary tract at that. To pull in all the mythologies and symbolisms and the way that those people, those Gentiles, recognize Jesus Christ or, or God of heaven, right? God of heaven and earth, the son of man. They recognize that name because they figured that was Baal or Baal, who would have been the planet Mars in a lot of these ancient like Roman traditions. Romulus and, and Rome, they claimed divinity. They claimed to be the divine kings or sons of the planet Mars. That was that was the Lord to them because they saw this, this ancient tradition where the ages of the world were governed by planets and that different things happened and catastrophes were real. They didn't deny any of that. We do in our modern time. So when we see the book of Revelation, we think it's strictly something that he wrote that's a secret only for us in the latter days about the end times, and it's the secret. We got to decode it all, and it's really not that. It's really not, although we can use it as a forewarning and to know exactly what's going to happen before the second coming. So it is, but it's because these things echo and repeat, and the, the, the past is the key to the future, and that's that's what we get in this chapter with, with uh, Anthony Larson showing that this missionary tract of John is pointing to all the traditions and saying, that's Jesus Christ. So that thing that you worship that you think did that or, or they think Mars was crucified. In fact, if you go into the tradition of Mars, he was crucified in heaven and there was a battle and all these all these things, all the things that Mars does in their in their cosmology, Jesus Christ does in ours and has and is the original version of it. Um, idolatry is that inversion is the switching of your focus and worship to a divine man 
to the divine planet or the creation. Um, you know, it seems logical to us that all well, planets came first, they're bigger, they're, how could a man create a planet? But we have no idea what celestial man is capable of, and that's exactly what we're dealing with. We're a fallen man, and that celestial man came down and is lifting us out of this fallen pit. So it, it is a missionary track. They're trying to convert the Gentiles. That was the mission of John. I mean, that they, all the apostles, that was their creed, and that's what our, our job is. Even today, the Book of Mormon is not to the Jews, <laughs> and not yet. It's, it's to the Gentiles, and it's not even to convert all the Gentiles. The the Mormon pro the Book of Mormon prophets knew that the Gentiles of this latter day would be so upside down in their belief system and and their inability to recognize these ancient cosmic symbols that it was really for the the remnant seed of Israel that was scattered amidst the Gentiles. That's the Book of Mormon for the last 200 years. That's been the work. But I think what we're seeing and what we're approaching with the acceleration of the work that President uh, Nelson is always referring to and this pivot of the nations about to collapse and things like that, that's going to coincide with a shift in ideology of cosmology, of religion, theology, all these things. And you'll see these two churches come together like Nephi saw, I believe. And I, I think we're going to see a literal version of that, but it's going to it's going to come down to this fundamental um, base of cosmology and understanding symbolism. That's what the book of Revelation is. It's a tying everybody together. Um, it's not some secret for us to decode and find out the exact day that the Lord comes because we know that's not what he, he told us. Don't do that. <laughs> it's not that. It's symbolic. And so when we look at it this way, it, it is um, it is more revealing of, of Jesus Christ and his overall mission and not some esoteric thing that only a few should understand. But it was for everybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really love that. And, and that's helped me understand why. You know, many of the prophets seen the same vision and, and things, but they weren't allowed or permitted to write about it because because John is coming at it from a full Gentile perspective with all of these different uh, cultures and, and things. You know, when uh, Nephi has, has left and uh, headed over here, some of those things haven't even happened yet. Some of those um, traditions are, are still uh, to, to play out and... Um, so, so John is, is the one that is uh, chosen to, to compile that in that specific way and, and tell that. So that, that explanation has really helped uh, unlock my brain into the reasons why um, that was reserved for one person. Um, well, think about his, his call as a translated being as well. And we know from Joseph Smith that the responsibility of translated beings is unto many planets, is to minister unto many planets. And so it's a it's a cosmic thing. So it makes sense that a cosmic translated man under the spirit of Elijah, who's also a cosmic translated man, talking about Zion, who's a translated city, right? Like all of this stuff is cosmic and has to do with other planets. That's the truth of it. And so when you see the, the book of Revelation as that, and you accept that, hey, there's a family of planets and that they're involved with the planet salvation as well. It To me, that's like the biggest, um, I teach that to my kids and they understand it. You don't have to be a Hebrew scholar to understand the book of Revelation if you're seeing it in its proper context. Mm -hmm. I love that. So um, kind of starting off with a couple questions from our listeners in, in past episodes, but I think it, it forms a great um, uh, framework for heading into the book of Revelation. Um, but here's two different questions that I would pose out to both of you that... Um, some people have, have wanted to, to know or are a little bit confused with, so was the polar configuration before, during, or after the fall, or or uh, yes, like the, um, the eye in the sky before it starts moving around and uh, taking different shapes and, and things? And then the second question is, um, so what encounters exactly have we had in the past? Like how many times has Venus had a close encounter? How many times has, has Mars come with a, a plasma column kind of a thing? That kind of gets 
I mean, because Anthony Larson's book is, is a very quick <laughs> read through uh, to, yeah. to help uh, navigate this new paradigm, but um, somewhat simplifying that and, and kind of uh, putting it into a, a better context for people as we do head into the book of Revelation to show what has been and how the, the past is prologue kind of a thing. So, yeah. yeah, how would you guys answer that? Wendy, do you have something first? Well, maybe you can expound on it because my understanding is that it's after the fall, but that our that our planet was in um, a congregation of planets closer to to Kolob, and that it fell um, from a celestial sphere um, to to where it is at now. But in that process, um, we were escorted out of the presence of God, just like escorts in the temple. Like you're going to be escorted. The Lord has higher beings that help during in any kind of fallen period like in times in my life when i've had a descent i know that angels of god were with me you know what i mean so anyway so that escorting um planetary alignment like the shish kebab is also like how i like to envision it of of saturn venus and mars um and the earth um falling to its current sphere and then saturn reacting I mean, there was a, an interaction with, with soul, with our current sun, and things fell out of alignment. And now we're really, really far from the presence of God in this telestial sphere. So that's my understanding. But, and maybe you could expound on that and maybe go answer number two. I don't know which. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I like, I love that. And see, this is the joy to me is that you're coming to it on your own, like things that I, look, the spirit is working in this. And here's here's the way I'd say it. We don't know the answers. Okay. I want to clarify and say we don't have clear doctrine on this. So this is speculation. I'm I'm letting my dog in. I'm walking, but I'm I'm talking. This is speculation on our part to to say like we know anything about what happened during the garden to the fall from Adam down to the flood of Noah. Because amidst all of our scriptures that we have, from the Old Testament, New Testament, Pearl of Great Price, Doctrine and Covenants, all these things, we only have about eight chapters from the time of Adam until the flood of Noah. Eight chapters versus how many how many other chapters uh, for the time after that we have focused on. So we don't I don't know. I can guess. And uh, even even the mythologies of the time, a lot of them seem to start even from the flood down, not necessarily from actual Adam's time, but from the eight original from the flood, like Chinese uh, creation lore. Uh, it's a creator. Uh, a creator god man and a woman come down with a family with uh, three sons and three daughters or it's like the story of noah basically um is the beginning of the chinese cosmology so like a lot of the records don't go back even as far uh, before the flood necessarily there's there's a lot of um atlantis antediluvian talk and rumor about this stuff or e the book of enoch but even the book of enoch is a much it's written much later in time it's written much closer towards like the advent of christ and, and after that or even after um so it's you can't take it as, oh, this this happened before the flood. So again, take what I'm saying with as, as a grain of salt. But from my understanding, the way that I would see that planets would be birthed um, would be akin to the experiments that are happening right now with plasmas, um, plasma physics. Okay. I'll just put it that way. Like in, I want to say nuclear nuclear physics, like nuclear, trying to nuclear power generation using plasma techniques and stuff like that. Um, there are certain techniques that are using the model of like an electric universe and an electric sun to use plasma, not in a high temperature or cold temperature environment, but in a more neutral environment. Um, and they're creating effects that would that would explain like how a planet could be created on a round body, because I'm not doing a great job of explaining this. I'm going to have to put something together <laughs> and, and really do it well. But um, in these experiments that they're doing, creating a, an electrical sun basically in a box, they're able to transmute metals 
meaning create metals that didn't exist before out of the like the molecular change in the in the, the gases and the, and the things in their chamber they were able to to transmute and make organized elements in a plasma environment or, uh, according to an electrical star model right and when they did that they they took in with their uh, electric uh, micron electric scopes and they went down deep to see the things that were being created these molecules and they were round spherols they were perfect round spherols that were being created on the surface of another round spherol and eventually they, they would guess that they would be ejected into an orbit or pushed down or something so they come off the surface being organized on the surface of another body this is just a caveat like if we're, if we're exploring creation doctrine right and wanting to say how was the earth formed the standard world looks at it as an accretion disk. There's a bunch of dust, and then gravity is what pulls it all together and binds it in a billions-of-year process. But the electric universe way to say how creation could happen is it could happen relatively very quickly through an electrical process. Like imagine a, a galactic-sized uh, lightning bolt coming down and organizing matter. Matter would, would be magnetized and like much quicker than gravity alone doing the, the, the heavy lifting in terms of sifting materials and putting them together. So when you when you factor in electrical power, electricity into creation and the cosmos, that's a big thing that's not being done right now, um, and hasn't been done for the last however many years. With the with with the advent of radio telescopes and things like this, in the last 50 years, I would say that um, this is shifting, and they're starting to admit, oh yeah, well there's electricity out there, but it doesn't do anything because they they would need to revise their fundamental models of how they think the space works if they're if they fully admit what's going on and what they see. And you can see this now if you look at the James Webb telescope pictures and you see that what they're seeing is, is a bunch of plasma. It's a bunch of electrified gas out there and they don't know exactly how to make sense of it. So they create things like dark matter, dark energy, blah, 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 things they can't find and they haven't found and haven't proved yet to make sense of it all in their broken scenario. We don't have to dig into all those weeds. It's good and it strengthens my testimony to do it. But um, getting back to the creation process, if we take in that there's an electrical nature to all, all this happening that light is the source of like let there be light you know that, that this is this is exactly how creation happens then we can expect that the process will be different okay with that being said i believe in a celestial environment let's say there was maximum electric power and i'm just using it crudely i'm not saying celestial power is electric um exactly it's not it's not a one-to-one -one, uh, comparison but we can use it just like we say the sun is like the celestial kingdom kind of thing um but when planets are are in a current of celestial energy, let's put it that way. They're in a celestial state. They would be amortal. If, if, for example, celestial beings came down in that environment and created beings on a celestial planet that was created in that current of power, they would still be celestial, yet they would not be resurrected because they had not fallen into a mortality and come back through. I believe that's kind of the scenario that happens here, that the creation initially happens in a giant current of electricity, if we're gonna put it crudely, right? In a space current of electricity that a, a planet is assigned to be the home of spirit children. And this planet has the first the firstborn of the father. His name is Jehovah, right? And he's he's like the lead of this spirit environment of spirit planets that are being born in a celestial environment. When they when they are made physical and they fall out of it through through the fall, the process of it, they stay relatively intact, but the power is removed at the fall. So imagine that scenario. The Adam and Eve are in the garden and the environment is celestial and there's just um the maximum electric light then that that divine beings can uh, they, that they live in we'll just put it that way eternal burnings right that we're in a super excited environment and this would i mean you would have telepathic communication you could talk to the animals in that in that kind of communicate that way just like we saw moroni go up through a conduit or a portal when he's visiting joseph smith or appear just as a light being like in the room and light shining nobody else noticing but one person it's it's um 
it's a manipulation of finer material, the spirit matter, right? Like that's what happens when you amp up the power totally. That's what a transfiguration event is. That's why Moses, when he comes down from the mount, he is literally glowing because he is physically filled with light. And this allows access to that greater power that's organizing things. So um, this, this event, Adam and Eve partake of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, right? So they're, they're taking, they're, they're, they break the law that keeps everything together. And so they're forced, they have to go down. And that's when Christ was assigned to be, to be with them. But let's just say the planets were close together. In this environment, I imagine the Earth as an attached moon or a very close moon to the planet Saturn. And I would say Saturn is the planet Kolob in this scenario. I get a lot of push pushback from people because uh, the Kolob theorem, uh, especially that that postulates, right? It's just a guess, just a guess from from uh, one brother in the church who doesn't hold an electric universe paradigm. So he's trying to fit what is in Abraham and what Joseph Smith has revealed in our doctrines and things. He's trying to fit that to a standard model view of the age of the universe and things like that and the center of the galaxy possibly being where the center of where god is or anything i say in this electric universe view we don't have to take that premise we could say that the center of the universe or jesus christ's uh, uh, initial spiritual home could have been right here this is our solar system but it's now our turn that we've fallen into this mortal trouble and that when it reconstitutes it won't need to travel billions of years to a center of a galaxy no it'll just need the right amount of power and the right alignment and that's what I believe is the thousand year millennium is the whole restructuring of the planets into an alignment that can once again have that kind of power flow that was in the Garden of Eden. So it'll connect it to the bigger cosmic web of light that's connecting all the stars. And that's what they're seeing in plasma physics and astronomy now is that space is all connected. It's interconnected. It's, they're not big globes on a giant vacuum of emptiness, but that plasma pervades everything and they're connected by light and energy. Okay. So that's a long-winded response kind of, but I think it, it's necessary to understand what happens here because it's a slow, gradual fall from an immortal state, Adam and Eve, into immort immortality or a, mo a mortality. I'm trying to, sp to split the words. Um, so it takes about a thousand years or one day of a Garden of Eden time for the earth to fall to a position where Adam is now mortal and dies. At this time after he dies, shortly thereafter, the flood happens. In my mind, Adam and him being alive and the, the, the thing connecting them to the garden and the original witness, the man who walked with God, the father, and saw both of them, right, and gave that witness down through the chain in our testimony. If you read lectures on faith, this is a big reason and part of understanding faith is the chain, lane of, or the chain of witness from Adam down through time through the prophets and the patriarchs, right? Like this matters. The nine patriarchs up to the flood – they're important, but we don't have anything about them really. Like this is this is their story that they lived in a totally different planetary environment, I believe, where Saturn was close to the Earth, possibly Uranus, Neptune, moons of Jupiter. Who knows? There could have been all kinds of planets that we're not even familiar with today, or we know them by different names now. And they would have been interacting and having, um, you know, a scenario as they're falling before the flood, before the, the Saturn and Jupiter and the system that they're in. Imagine them in a column falling now, and they approach the Sun. Well, they're going to interact electrically, and that's what happens at the flood is that if stars are electrical in nature and as they approach, they're going to have interactions, explosions, lightning bolts, all kinds of things. It causes supernovas when, when stars collide. That's why you have binaries that are causing these according to the world's theory. Well, you don't need a binary necessarily. Um, it could be a small body or a comet that causes a mass explosion from, from a star. It doesn't matter. It's just the balance of, of what's going on in each environment um, or each estate. Let's, let's think of it that way, right? Because if we're in our first estate where things everything's in a, an electrical state that's high and celestial, we fall, we fall states or electrical states into this current mortality where we can die, where we're, we're not going to regenerate. And that's, that's, that's the problem. That's the problem of death, right? And that's what Jesus Christ and everything uh, – and, and God essentially it, it comes down. The whole, all the mythologies are come to save us from a fallen paradisical state. So 
if we have this planetary descent in mind from Adam down to Noah, we can say that the polar configuration, in my perspective, was persistent until the flood. It was at the flood that the power and that, that was visibly connecting the planet still, because I don't think everything turned off after the fall. I think Adam and Eve, for hundreds of years, even up to the city of Enoch, I believe Enoch and his city were taken off during some type of catastrophe. I do. This is my opinion, Leland's opinion, that their city had to have been lifted up because that's the MO or the modus operandi for all other people that were taken up or cities, that it happens during some type of planetary catastrophe or great uh, upheaval of apostasy, right? So Enoch, we know that that's kind of what happens. Uh, his city gets taken up in some catastrophe. So this structure or congregation of planets is breaking apart all the way down until Adam dies and then the flood. Um, at the flood, the entire planet's wiped. It's it's a true end of the world scenario, but it's because the star that was leading them down, Kolob, right, Saturn. This is why in the Egyptian hypocephalus that we have, the figure two, in, in the middle, it, it identifies it as Kolob, but he's discharging. All the symbolism around that figure in the center of facsimile two, it's lightning. He's got lightning horns, the terminus, like you see out of plasma discharge out of the top of his head. He's got the, um, the squatter man legs descending down towards the earth. It's Saturn when it discharged and it left. And it even has water on the side. If you look at that really close, you'll see squiggly lines down the left-hand side of that middle figure that represent water because it's depicting the flood of Noah. This is what the this is what like this is what the Egyptians knew, and we're trying to imitate that. Hey, that thing fell, and we're trying to get back to worshiping God the right way. That's why they built the pyramids, all of that. So, from the flood down, the power is restricted from these planets, and they start to separate and kind of discombobulate. Saturn leaves probably from the the time um, of. Peleg is when I would say that the Earth divides entirely. Um, I think that's symbolic of Saturn actually leaving and Jupiter taking over at this point, because there's an exchange. And in mythology, this happens too. That Jupiter takes over the role of his father Saturn. He castrates him, and and Saturn eats all his children. And everybody thinks that that's crazy, um, or or child sacrifice to to this god Moloch. Right? This is where it comes from. That a planet was seen, it exploded and was seen in uh, from this perspective on Earth to basically consume its children, all the planets that it had created, to destroy them, to break them up, to cause all kinds of, of, of trouble. Or they would have passed behind it and it would have looked like he ate them, right? If they're in a line and you're looking at planets move. Also, all these all of all of the weird things of mythology can be explained if you're thinking of the plan of salvation and the fall as a progression of a, a cohesive structure of planets that gradually loses electrical power, descends into chaos, and gets captured by another sun. So that's what happens after the flood. All these other planets, Saturn, Jupiter, Mercury, Mars, Venus, so they all get captured by the current sun and are forced into new orbits. And so when Jupiter passes by, um, Mercury at the same time is having, um, and, and Velikovsky gets into this. I'm throwing this out there just by memory. But um, so Saturn leaves after the flood to the days of Peleg, and then it's even said, if you look in ancient records, that uh, Melchizedek and his people, they were said by the people around them to be worshipers of Jupiter because he would have been around at the time of Jupiter and, and Jupiter and Mercury interacting with uh, um, the Tower of Babel. Okay, So the, the, the catastrophe of the Tower of Babel in this planetary perspective of everything falling apart, we can pin that down pr with pretty good accuracy uh, using Velikovsky's um, resources and the sources that he points to. We can, we can see that it looks like uh, that's the next big catastrophe after the flood was this Tower of Babel interaction between the planet Mercury or Nebo and uh, and the planet Jupiter, that Jupiter threw a lightning bolt that probably connected to, to Mercury and then to the Earth. Um, 
the, the confusion of language as well, if you're looking at it from a medical standpoint, uh, a surge of electricity like that, like a thunderbolt from heaven, that kind of environment can cause like stroke syndromes where you lose actual function functionality to remember language or even how to walk or talk or certain things. Um, so that could be an argument as well for that destruction and that actual uh, the actual thing. And this is why the brother of Jared and his family would have prayed to God and, and were given a way to avoid those plagues in their worst form just like the people of Moses before the catastrophe of the Exodus, right? That they were given away if they would follow a specific law, a code of health, of eating, of uh, obedience and sacrifice, that they would be spared for some of the catastrophic plagues that would accompany some upheaval in earth that would set them free. I jumped ahead to Exodus, but that would have been another catastrophe. I skipped the uh, burning of Sodom and Gomorrah, which also is, is uh, attributed to Jupiter, that a lightning bolt from Jupiter would have been like an airburst or an electrical strike, think of it like that way, like an electrical shock that would have just destroyed and petrified or, or fossilized, turned to salt. Think of that parable with, with Lot's wife turning back to salt. Like that's all electrical, like within our electrical paradigm, it fits like a glove. Um, so that would have been a catastrophe there as, as Jupiter leaves. Then from Jupiter down, this is where you have Abraham and a new covenant established. A new name, a new covenant, a new people, because at this point, the Lord knows that there aren't going to be major cataclysms to the earth where Abraham's seed is actually going to spread until the end. So this is where you have this covenant of Abraham and the promise that his seed will spread and be a, a blessing to the earth. We're living that right now because we are his seed through the, the house of Israel and the book of Mormon gathering us all, right? That, that we will stand up with our temples and things and with our law that we've been given to withstand and provide a way to escape the catastrophe that's coming. It's the same pattern throughout all time and history. Think about Neph now the Book of Mormon. We had, uh, again, um, I'm jumping too, too much between timelines. Um, let me go back. So you have Sodom and Gomorrah catastrophe, Jupiter leaves. After that, you get into the Exodus, and this would be the interactions of Mars and Mercury where they make passes, or they call them Passovers. This is why the Passovers start, where these planets start to pass over the Earth. Mars and Venus. Yes. It, it, and they're regular 40, 50 year intervals because this, these are the orbits that are starting to figure out around the new sun, that they become regular and expected and around certain seasons. And so rituals and celebrations and uh, holy days are built around these interactions so that it's, it's in the awareness of the people of the mind that you don't freak out. The kingdoms might collapse. People might freak out, but God will lead us through like he has before. This is why a star is also his sign at, at his birth. Uh, um, there's, there's some more minor catastrophes between the flood of, uh, of the Exodus. I mean, not the flood. The, between the Exodus and the parting of the Red Sea, Velikovsky attributes that to the body of Venus. And there's a lot of evidence that points to Venus being the planet that would have been the cause of like parting the Red Sea and, and the pillar of fire and the thing that put fear in the Pharaoh and all of the surrounding nations as the Israelites were, were escorted, right, by a minister to a new promised land. And that's that's the theme over and over and over and over again, that you have these heavenly messengers and angels and bodies come down and escort us down to a new state. After that, uh, Mars is interacting uh, at certain points after Venus. This We're, we're at like BC 1500 around um, the Exodus, okay? 800 BC is Isaiah's day, and around his day, Mars is the planet now that's in between, mediating between Venus. Mars is a much smaller planet than Venus, but it would regularly go to bat against Venus, and that's why he's the warrior, and like they thought it would – when you read the mythology, that's how they, they um, address him, that he's kind of the crazy warrior to attack such a great foe and beast in, in Venus because it was a much bigger planet and had a huge cometary tail that looked like a dragon. And so this warrior would go to, to battle with the dragon, and it seemed like he would deflect Venus from doing more damage to the earth. 
but and that's why he would be lord lord baal and he'd be their protector and things like that because it was this this dance between planets as they wrote as, as they secured themselves in a stable orbit leading up to the advent of christ where he's at the bottom once everything settles christ is born basically when he dies there's another cataclysm right and when he comes there's a close pass by by a planet because that's how the wise men see him there's a, a new star in the sky what is that it's a comet or a planet it's the same thing that passed by before every time and that's why he times it with the passovers and when he dies there's another catastrophe so like it's not weird for me to say this. It is, it is weird when I bring all this information in for people then to turn and deny it or, or to say, no, I think, I think you're misinterpreting. It's like, okay, I'm not saying this is how it has to be, but these things happened. These things are real. And to see them in a light where they're incorporated into our temple worship and not only into our temple worship, but they explain the scriptures better. They explain ritual better. They explain the chaos in the world better. Like they explain everything better when we look at it through this cosmological perspective, through a catastrophe perspective that literally the stars and, and planets came down and interacted with the earth. Now, for 2000 years since Jesus Christ, we've been in a, a stable orbit, right? It's been relatively quiet. Now, there have been some catastrophes like 600 AD. I think there was one even at 1500, um, in the 1500s that was recorded as well, where there was a large earthquake. Like they could, these could be considered the end of the world, like second, you know, book of Revelation signs to the people of the day. They would have thought the world was ending then and Revelations was being fulfilled. And there were comets that passed by that would have, put this same type of fear and memory into their minds. Mm -hmm. um, it, it all gets forgotten though, when, when the catastrophe isn't, isn't full, isn't real. You know, if it's just a scare, then it's, oh, well, that, that doesn't really happen. And that's where we're at today. It's like a denial uh, or Vilikovsky calls it a collective amnesia from tra traumatic experiences that we have this irrational fear of comets and things because it really has destroyed us in the past. And that's what all the oral traditions, the ancient histories of Native Americans, the occult, secret societies and mystery religions, they all teach this. And so why not, instead of ignoring that, don't look into the occult stuff, don't look into any of that because it could, it could ruin your testimony or it could, Satan could get you. Why, why have that defensive attitude when God and Joseph Smith and everybody has given us all the keys to understand it properly and to see how fake all the occult stuff is, how much of an imitation it really is to the true restored gospel that comprehensively explains not just world and human history, but planetary history in a way that you don't have to ignore anything. That's what this is to me. And that was really long. I'm sorry. But um, in terms of understanding the polar configuration, that's how I see it. It's a gradual descent and disintegration of all these things. This is why Job laments that after the flood, right? He's living in a time uh, probably during catastrophe with all the crazy things that seem supernatural that happened to Job. They probably was a comet passed by or Mercury or one of these events earlier in, uh, in this timeline. And he's lamenting saying, now the earth hangeth from nothing. And the, the Lord stretches the north over the empty place. So these, these planets and things that were once fixed in the north and gave them solace and told the time and were fixed and were, that's why Saturn is father time and all these things, like it, it mattered to them. And then when it was gone, it was chaos. They were wandering in a strange land and captured by, by a new strange strange uh, kingdom and God. So again, the parallels are endless. And to me, that's evidence that this echoes of, of eternal truths. When we're getting down to the fundamental symbol archi archetypes, this starts to happen where you see it affecting and, and connecting dots to everything. You know you're on the right track. And that's that's what this is a beginning into. And I forgot your second question because I spent an hour there to <laughs> going, going into the destruction of the polar configuration. So I can't remember. I'm sorry. Oh, no, so good. Both of them. So yeah, it's great. Before you go to that second question, I just want to speak to the catastrophes after Christ. Like there was a couple and I just came across something this week because I'm, I just love learning and, and I'm a science teacher too. And so um, 
anyway, so also learning more mythology than I ever, I never was interested in. I'm really interested in it, but, um, you know, in King Arthur, you like, you know, they say he lived around the sixth century and, and when he died, um, there's some Celtic myths actually that I thought was so interesting, but they're the God of Lug is a solar deity that comes up in the West and has a long arm. It makes me think of com comets, right? Yep. Which could be, um, could be a comet and Luke is is also famous for delivering terrible blows anyway so the some of the the mythology there and so then I got went back and I was looking at like 536 540-ish AD like there's a lot of like in the study of trees like their tree rings um anyway they found that during that time like trees were not growing at all very very much but um in in a in some the book of kings it's like a java in Indonesia, of records back back over there, it says in that record, a mighty thunder, which has answered by a furious shaking of the earth, pitch darkness, thunder and lightning, and then came forth a furious gale, together with a hard rain, a deadly storm darkening the entire world. In no time, there came a great flood. And we all of these, I mean, when you read that, I'm like, okay, well, I know what that is. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. you can see the patterns of of the celestial um celestial movement causing causing a reaction on the earth the action is up is is up above us right causing these very quick there's a lot of energy released it's it's cataclysmic it's not this slow process that we've been brainwashed to thinking and so i wish i could teach these things to my students right i'm like I don't <laughs> you can't want to though. like i have like they, like the government's like you have to teach the standards and i'm like uh, how do I how do I save these kids, right? But anyway, I just thought I'd throw that in there because I was just studying that this week. I thought it was interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love it. You'll uh, find it everywhere, like you said. It's just yeah. there's so much. There's so many witnesses. All right, sorry. What was the second question? <laughs> well, the the two questions was um, what was the polar configuration like you know kind of through um the different times before during and after the fall and then um exactly what encounters have we had like how many times has venus and and mars passed by kind of a thing but uh, i think uh, both of those were, okay. were answered in there uh, very well and i'll just say too I, I don't know and i don't think anybody can say definitively like this is exactly what happened especially with how disparate the records are or how different and from uh, and varying they are um as well we're not taking into account a lot of our, our dating uh, relies on radiocarbon dating, but there are issues with radiocarbon dating when you factor in planetary catastrophe. The, the, the basis upon which radiocarbon dating is established requires that things are uniform, that there haven't been drastic changes to the atmosphere, the oceans, or the environment. Yet all of, all of the things we're talking about would cause drastic interruptions, and not only that, but additions from cosmic sources. So you would have had particles, dust, and literal chunks of and, and boulders like this is what they said when barad comes down during the exodus these are flaming stones that are tons 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 like houses falling from the sky and a lot of them are spheral they're, they're formed spheres because they're formed in electricity like they come down as spheres and on mars you can see on the surface of mars that has constant electric activity and no atmosphere to mitigate it there are what they call uh, martian blueberries you can look it up martian blueberries are these little tiny blue spheres that are formed due to dust storms and electrical activity. So you have spheres being formed in electricity. Again, like, wah, wah, wah. there should be alarms going off to people spheres. to say, let's <laughs> take this seriously, that that 
spheres are important. The Earth is not flat. I'm not a flat Earther. I come with weird ideas. And when I say stuff like electric universe, people immediately are like, oh, you believe in flat Earth or you believe in this or that. And it's like, no, no, this is much different. Uh, it's not a PSYOP, I promise. <laughs> Sorry. I love it. But yeah, um, like what you said, when, when everything starts distilling and you uh, start seeing that it fits the pattern, um, I think that the pattern is actually one of the, the harder things for us to, to grasp when we're, when we're first off. We, we typically uh, go to receive our endowments uh, having little preparation and we are, are trained so much in, in, in proxy work rather than um, taking a look at what the temple teaches us is the pattern and then taking that pattern and going back to scriptures and, and corroborating everything and then that's where the big aha moment for for cosmism and uh, catastrophism really came in it was like well it fits the pattern why wouldn't it be true like it all makes yeah. sense now and um, as things start happening then then you start realizing God's hand in all things that when everything comes and, and goes to a chaos and the whole purpose of all creation is to come back out of that chaos and, and return there. But that's not an easy process. It, it's not like a, a pain-free thing. It, it requires covenants and, and protection through all of the different stages. And I think that that's where Revelation comes into play as this great um, uh, missionary track, to put it in, in that phrase, of, of hope that we have went through all of this chaos and we have to go back through the chaos in in a reverse chiastic uh pattern yeah. in order to to get back to where we were before and um <laughs> some people have, have looked at uh, this book um as very anthony's book i'm referring to as like oh this is kind of crazy and, and weird and and just kind of put it on a uh, a back shelf of well if that's all true I, I don't really want to know about it I'll just be one of the ones that, that hide in a rock somewhere but looking at these things and going if we are God's covenant people he will protect us and and save us through all of this and we can navigate it we don't have to be alone and <laughs> going um, like Anthony's first chapter in this book like what if this happens and and all of a sudden there's red dust everywhere and there's planets and uh, as big as I'll get out in the sky, what are you going to do? Well, if you are true and faithful to your covenants and uh, are being prepared, you have a protection clause in those covenants that will lead you safely through this, and we will get back to his presence. And so I think that's... Um, when I, I took a Revelation class a, a while back uh, at BYU-Idaho, and it was interesting how our professor presented it, um, I wish I could remember his name. I need to go back through my notes. But um, he said, okay, the book of Revelation is organized into chunks. There's crazy and then the, an interlude of hope. And then there's crazy and then an interlude of hope. And and he's like, but really the whole thing is an interlude of hope yeah. in the great scheme of, of everything. And I, I, I thought that was just so fitting. Um, coming at this with a, a catastrophism uh, paradigm that's helping unlock all of these things this really is hopeful. Like there's, yeah. it's exciting. Like I, I want to be around when uh, Mars and, and its moons are <laughs> coming like the chariots and, yeah. and the, <laughs> the John Cena. I was like, this is cool. I don't have to be a <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. um, I, I just, I just want to say too, it, it, to me, it, it's not just hope, but um, I feel compelled. Like 
I feel that there are scriptures that specifically say we shouldn't be putting our head in the sand like an ostrich and saying, well, I'll just be one to put the I, I, I feel guilty by doing that. And I have my whole life. And that's this is why I did not accept that answer from seminary teachers or whoever it was to say, oh, we just don't know yet. We'll know when the millennium comes. And to me, uh, that's shirking. That's shirking my responsibilities to seek. And especially because I couldn't I couldn't kick the questions like I never got rid of them and they never went away, never got an answer that I felt. I mean, I could be appeased and forget about it for a while, but it would always come back. These have not only answered all of those questions that I had previously, but they have turned me to new questions that I look with excitement to find answers to, because there's no way that whatever the answers to those new questions I find, they're not going to contradict anything because I've already put myself up on such a weird tower that there's no way to really go left or right at this point. You have to go down this 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 catastroph uh, catastrophic path and accept what the prophets are saying. And like Wendy was saying, it's it's really a desire to know what these ancients knew. I, it, it is overwhelming to realize I do want to study all Egyptian mythology, Persian mythology, Babylonian mythology, like all these people. I want to know, and, and, it, and it feels like, oh, I can't do it all. But at the same time, I think, perfect. I'm hoping to live 100 years, right? At mm -hmm. least. If, if Christ doesn't come and I'm living 1,000 or, or 500 or whatever, it doesn't matter. Like if, if that doesn't happen and we're living a different timeline, I've got a lot of time. And I can organize my time that instead of wasting it doing things that bring me down or tempt me to misremember my identity – I can continue in this path and it never stops. Uh, I got to a point personally where I got to so many questions that I was just like losing myself studying, studying all these things. And um, I felt a distinct call and a desire to, to share. Like I wanted to share with my wife, wanted to share with everybody I could talk to. I couldn't stop talking about planets and that's bad too. <laughs> Don't do that. But, but I, I, I learned, I learned a my lesson. My career would be at stake. <laughs> yeah, well, my, I think all of my friends and family have qu still questioned my sanity. So, I mean, that's those are the repercussions of, of like really leaning into this, guys. Just forewarning that um, some people will not accept. They won't take the the challenge and do the and do the work. But even even a modicum, even even just trying it a little bit, right? Just Anthony Larson's book, for example, just giving those a real open-minded look. <laughs> I don't understand why that's so hard. Yeah, but but it is because I think it people can feel that. If you start to accept this paradigm, this worldview, a lot of things are going to have to change in what you what you believe. You're going to have to dig and uproot a lot of longstanding beliefs and and things that are probably untrue at this point. And that's a lot of work. It really is. And, and if we're complacent mentally or all is well in Zion, comfortable, this is not going to be an endeavor that you want to join. So this for me is another shibboleth of, of the separating of the wheat from the tare, that the people who see this and recognize how it connects to the temple and how it connects to prophecy and how it connects to all the scriptures, they are the ones that are going to do the work to bring it a, a, a more clear picture. Then those who waited and or those who denied, they will not have a reason or, or a foot to stand on to say, well, I didn't know. I didn't know. I, I didn't want to know that stuff. No, everybody around you was inviting you and you said, no, I'd rather watch sports. I'd rather watch Disney. I'd rather watch these things. And, and to me, that is a, that's an interview with the Lord that I don't want to have to say, no, I didn't try. I didn't look at all these things because it was boring, Lord. I didn't look at all these things because it was weird, Lord. Like, well, when the planet came and you cried because you, your heart stopped in fright because you did not believe that would happen. Well, there's your there's your uh, your judgment, Leland. Like I love you still. You didn't you didn't listen, but it's much easier. And, and like you said, it provides more hope and clarity to the scriptures and to our temple worship. And again, I have I understand that there are issues out there that people are struggling with. For example, homosexuality or whatever it is, same sex attraction, these things. With this cosmic understanding, I have hope for everybody. But those issues do not tempt me one bit. 
I'm inoculated to, to falling prey to some of the philosophies of the men because their philosophies are set up on false paradigms that don't include all this stuff. And so it's easy to see when people are trying to manipulate you with, with emotional heart stringing, right? And, and that's the strength in this. And, and then to see everyone suffering online with what's going on, but then also unwilling to look at this stuff, that's the frustration for me. That's where in my raps and in everything else, probably online, where you see the sharpness come out, where I want to, I want to like John and James be Thunder Brothers and start going up and showing everybody that this is important, but uh, not quite my place yet. And I'm learning slowly. I think my, my, uh, my podcast and, and trying to provide a ladder for others and to show how I've put these pieces one in, you know, one foot after the other, um, this is what I've compelled to turn back and help others instead of go on to the new questions that are so exciting. But again, it's all exciting to me. And even this, talking to you guys here, like I'm not faking this. I'm not trying to come up with narratives and points that I need to make sure I say to you guys. Like I, I just am this excited to talk about this stuff. So thank you. <laughs> I love it. It's exciting to get together, yeah. <laughs>